everyone. This episode is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com. Going to be talking about Carmilla today, not Camilla, as I keep saying. Carmilla today, and we're going to be talking to Drew. So you've heard Drew a bunch, and don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Black Clock Audio Tales, People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Find us on social media. We're on Instagram. We're on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. And you know what? You can go to paypal.me slash pgttcm and donate some money to help keep the lights on and keep keep the episodes coming. And you can also go to threadless.com. Go to pgttcm.threadless.com. Check out our cool shirts. We've got the Ratfink-inspired Sothagwa and Atlasnacha t-shirt right now. We've also got a couple of logo shirts for the TV, uh, for the, uh, TV show, I wish, for the podcast that, I don't know, I like them. I, I, I wear one around. I, I, I think it's cool. We've got buttons, uh, not on anything, but if you go to any event that I'm at, or if, you know, you live in Portland and you're like, hey... Or if you sell in a self-addressed stamped envelope, I can send you some buttons, some stickers, whatnot. Anyway, message me if you want uh, buttons and stickers, because, you know, self-addressed stamped envelope, that's when you send an envelope to someone inside of an envelope. But you make sure that there's postage on the envelope so that the person you're sending it to doesn't have to pay postage for you. And, you know, stuff with free stuff. All right, uh, today we're going to be talking about Carmilla, as, as I said a moment ago, and here we go. All right, here we are with Dr. Andrew Grace, professor, PhD uh, in, in Dracula. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what my degree is in. I spent seven years at the University of Oregon studying Dracula, as well as Dracula-related texts known as 19th century Gothic fiction. And I'm here today to talk about Carmilla, possibly the sexiest of vampires that don't sparkle. Oh, because I was going to say Blade. (laughs) I don't know. I did say... (laughs) I did say possibly. Possibly. It's possibly. like it's like, oh man, what, what vampire movies can I think of off the top of my head that aren't Yeah. <laughs> but but Blade. technically Blade was only half a vampire. Well, okay. Alright. Um yeah, I don't think I've in oh man, I'm gonna get in trouble for this at the top of the show. I've never seen Blade. I've never seen any of those movies. <laughs> You've never seen Blade? Yeah, yeah, I've never seen Blade. Um, I've never watched more than half an episode of Buffy. And uh, what other... Oh, and and I haven't seen any True Blood. I have not seen any True Blood. Yeah, I I, I think I've missed out on all the actual, like, meant-to-be-sexy-vampire vampires. Ah, you've only seen the sexification of non-sexy vampires. Yeah, yeah, it's like, well, let's put a hat on a hat. Let's, okay, let's take, let's take a guy who's already considered, like, really, really attractive, and then let's put all this, like, vampire stuff on him, and then, like, make them ultra, ultra attractive. See, like, vampires should be, like, you take a guy like Christopher Lee, 
You know, Christopher Lee just looks like some British guy. You put some makeup on him, you put some fangs on him, you put some contact lenses in, you put him in some period clothes, boom, you've got like this like normally just like kind of plain looking guy. Boom, he's all like Dracula sexy. You know, but he's a very specific kind of Dracula sexy. Uh Uh-huh. Because he's still more Dracula than sexy. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, I know. You know, when you dive into the original text, Dracula was not all that sexy. No. He was kind of a unibrowed, creepy guy. Yeah, yeah, a little bit more closer to uh, Nosferatu. Uh, if, if, if we're going to go to, uh, like, Nosferatu, Camilla uh, line, I, I think, yeah, he was a little closer to the Nosferatu. Right. Yeah. Yes. We got it. But anyway, <laughs> Carmilla. Carmilla. Possibly. Possibly the sexiest of vampires. Not so much because we really get a lot in the way of physical description of her. We are told she is beautiful, but she did kick off the whole lesbian vampire subgenre, um, which I understand my colleague Brian Seropoulos already talked about. Yes, yes, yes. Brian already talked about it. So I'm actually going to start by situating Carmilla within the Gothic tradition, because that's what I do. Uh, that's what my, my PhD in English is all about. Mm-hmm. Um, so the important thing to understand in this regard is that prior to the 19th century, vampires were even uglier, yeah. right? Vampires were creatures out of folklore. They exist in a whole lot of cultures. I want to say all cultures, but that feels like a stretch. Mm-hmm. But you have a lot of different cultures with stories of creatures like vampires, creatures that drain life force in one way or another, whether it's literally draining blood or draining people in some other way. Mm -hmm. Creatures that are undead in some capacity. They're not abiding by the normal rules of being alive, and that's why they have to drain people's life force. Um and creatures with various kinds of supernatural powers, whether that's, you know, melding into shadows or hopping a lot, and also creatures with really weird superstitions of their own. Mm -hmm. One of the things going back into folklore is that vampires can consistently be flummoxed by their own uh, predilections towards behaving in specific ways. So whether that's if you throw a bunch of matchsticks, they have to stop and count them all. Mm-hmm. Or they can't enter your house without permission. Um, but it's in the 19th century, with John Polidori's story, The Vampire, that vampires get a new trait, which is this association with the aristocracy. So John Polidori's The Vampire comes out of the same ghost storytelling competition that produced Frankenstein. And John Polidori was actually really taking a dig at Lord Byron, the poet and general ne'er-do-well. Mm-hmm. Um, and Lord Byron's tendency to sort of use people up and discard them. Hmm. And so John Polidori combined this tradition of folklore tales of monstrous creatures that used up people's life force with the aristocrat generally considered attractive Lord Byron. Hmm. 
Hmm. And so his vampire uses people up, drains their blood, but also has an attractive dimension. You know, people want to be around him. Um, and in uh, Stoker's Dracula, 80 years later, that becomes mesmerism. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not necessarily that Dracula is that good looking or that attractive, but there's something compelling about him. And in between those two stories, we have Sheridan Lefanu's Carmilla. Uh, and in this one, we have a bit of that aristocratic dimension um, as Carmilla, who has a couple different pseudonyms, was originally Mircalla, uh, is considered very beautiful. We, we get descriptions of her, especially from when our protagonist, Laura, met her when she was very young. I shouldn't say met her, had mm-hmm. an encounter with her when she was very young and considered her a very beautiful lady. Um, presents herself as an aristocrat, presents herself as genteel. So drawing on that tradition that Polidori established of giving a more appealing dimension to the vampire to sort of understand how the vampire gets into people's homes and gets into people's lives. Um, And there's definitely something there in the transition of the vampire from monstrous creature outside to appealing creature inside in terms of what are people's anxieties, Hmm. right? What are people afraid of? What do they think is draining their life? And there's a generous reading that's probably a little too generous that people are starting to recognize that maybe aristocracy is part of what's draining their lives, right? Mm, Like, here's this group of people who just own everything and have all the money but don't contribute in any way. Uh Um, And they're sucking the life force out of it. Yeah. If you wanted to to really dig into some kind of Marx-like reading, that's not really supported by the rest of the text, but I kind of like it anyway. Okay. Um, the other way in which Carmilla gets situated within the Gothic tradition is that it's really self-conscious, almost metatextual, about the concept of haunting. Laura talks to us about the ways in which she feels haunted, um, and she becomes very passive in her feelings of hauntedness, Mm -hmm. which lets the story unfold um, in a way that would be really difficult if she was a more active protagonist. So she sort of spends the whole novel getting really weary, feeling like, well, I have to step back because I just referred to it as a novel. It's actually somewhere between a short story and a novella. Um, published once on its own in a... mm, I've now lost the word for monthly publication. Uh, Magazine? But (laughs) it wasn't a magazine. (laughs) Feels right, though. Um, But where where it is primarily consumed now is a collection of short stories that Sheridan LeFanu published called In a Glass Darkly, Mm -hmm. 
And, and that collection of stories shares a frame narration that I'll get into a little later. So another way in which Carmilla is situated within the Gothic tradition is that it explores the concept of haunting. Mm-hmm. So most Gothic texts feature characters being haunted by something. Sometimes it is strictly figurative. They're haunted by guilt. They're haunted by someone's past transgression coming back to affect their lives. Sometimes they are haunted by more definitive supernatural creatures, ghosts and vampires and the like. And one of the things that Gothic writers struggle with Mm -hmm. throughout the tradition is figuring out how to have these characters who are haunted and can't just solve their problems. And Laura, as a character who is haunted, becomes defined by her passivity. Okay. That her response to being haunted is to sort of do nothing. She just gets weaker and weaker and more tired and more tired. And part of that is, of course, the in-text explanation that her energy is being drained by a vampire. Her blood is being drained. She literally doesn't have energy. But there's also a kind of metaphorical reading of that um, related to her femininity and the Mm -hmm. way in which she is embodying this kind of passivity expected of 19th century women. And so as her life force gets more and more drained, she's more and more like the expectation of a 19th century genteel woman. Hmm. Furthermore, her passivity fits into something that Sheridan Le Fanu explores throughout the text of his short story collection, In a Glass Darkly, where a lot of his characters kind of fail to act and fail to solve their problems. And one of the things that the whole book is interested in is why do these characters fail to take progressive action? And sometimes it's because they have addictions, and sometimes it's because they feel guilty. And in Laura's case, we have a couple of options. One that I suggested is her just embodying this kind of passive femininity. But there's also something to her inability to understand her own relationship with Carmilla. So this other young or seemingly young woman who overtly expresses attraction to her. And so... Laura's sexuality is left in doubt by mm-hmm. the text. Like, is Laura also attracted to Carmilla? And if she is, is that part of why she is so passive? She can't actually act on her own feelings because that would be socially unacceptable. Um, he may also be passive. One of the options we see throughout, again, the whole collection of short stories is a struggle for people to understand the combination of physical and metaphysical ailments that they have. People suffer from a physical condition like addiction, but also a metaphysical condition like being haunted. So Laura is physically being drained of blood 
and metaphysically being sort of taken over by Carmilla's supernatural presence. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that Lefanu is exploring in this combination is the ways in which our mechanisms of understanding things, our mechanisms of creating knowledge break down in these combinations. People tend to understand things either in physical terms or in metaphysical terms. So to clarify that, a materialist, what we now think of as a scientist, would look for a physical explanation. Laura's Mm -hmm. blood is being drained and that explains her condition, but ignore the ways in which maybe she's being possessed or controlled by Carmilla. We're given religious figures who try to understand things strictly in a spiritual way and can maybe say, like, you are being insufficiently religious. uh, And if you prayed more, that would fix the problem. And the frame narration for the whole story collection of In a Glass Darkly is that the collection is put together by the secretary of one Dr. Hesalius, metaphysical physician. And Dr. Hesalius, we're told, is the only one who looks at both of these things. Mm -hmm. And his approach to treating patients is to understand both their physical condition and their more spiritual ailments. Hmm. And so... In terms of the ways in which Laura is haunted, part of what she's haunted by is this inability within her social setting to understand the combination of physical and metaphysical conditions. Um, The limitations of knowledge production within the 19th century Mm -hmm. Uh, the the division, the attempt to separate the physical and the spiritual, which we can really think of as new to the 19th century, mm-hmm. um, where prior centuries we didn't have a robust enough approach to science that you would ever have someone who is strictly materialist. And so by the middle of the 19th century, we're seeing more people practicing real professional science and therefore a rise in materialist views of the world Mm -hmm. and a growing conflict then between materiality and spirituality. Hmm. Interesting. And obviously very important to a story about lesbian vampires. Yeah. Because again, whenever someone thinks about Carmilla and, you know, the way she crawls into the bed with Laura and sort of slowly moves up from the feet, the first thing they think about in that scene is they think, oh, I get it. Laura's being passive here because she's really confused about the dichotomy of materialism and spirituality in the 19th century. And the primary reason they don't think that is that they haven't paid enough attention to the footnote at the beginning of the book Uh that cross-references Dr. Hesalius' other article on the subject, which, of course, 
doesn't actually exist. Okay. The important thing about that footnote is it cites a source that's entirely fictional. So it is one of it, it, that's what makes it part of the gothic tradition footnotes that don't mean shit footnotes that don't mean shit is the best tagline for the gothic tradition i feel like that's a cornerstone like uh, f- fake folklore and footnotes that don't exist are the cornerstone <laughs> of gothic tradition that's the tra- that's I that's think- the tradition I, I feel like I could have saved a lot of time in my, in my dissertation if I had, like, nailed that down right away. Footnotes that don't mean shit. And then it the gets... summary of the gothic tradition. And then it gets carried on into uh, weird fiction, for sure. Like, footnotes that don't mean anything, references that are totally fake, and mythology that, you know... They make reference to real books, but it's, like, second, third-hand information about, like books and stories and stuff like that and I, I don't know I, I know that the gothic tradition is very kind of like I don't know there's a little bit of a telephone involved and in like uh, things that they <laughs> reference here and there because you know books were not easy to come along at, at, at periods of time but luckily for us a lot of the gothics were uh, fancy pants uh, richie riches <laughs> <laughs> well I, I think I think you really got something there with the fact that there is definitely this dimension of the gothic tradition that is better and more strongly represented in weird fiction mm-hmm. than 20th century gothic fiction. Yeah, yeah. So that 20th century gothic fiction, to me, uh, breaks down a little bit. And 21st century gothic fiction breaks down even more because what it's doing is it's imitating the tropes of gothic fiction, okay. right? You know, it's got the castles, it's got the vampires, it's got the candles, but it doesn't actually capture the spirit of what makes gothic fiction interesting, which is uncertainty. Mm-hmm. So going back to Carmilla, we don't know... Carmilla is a vampire really at any point in the text, but definitely not until the end. Mm-hmm. You know, at the end, they dig up her body, which is covered in blood, and they drive a stake through her heart, and we're pretty sure she's a vampire at mm-hmm. that point. But 20th and 21st century Gothic fiction oftentimes gives us these images we're familiar to from Gothic fiction castles. But castles weren't present in Gothic fiction just because they were Gothic. Mm -hmm. They were present in Gothic fiction because they were confusing, because (laughs) they were old. Because you could run around one of them and not know where you were going. Um, And it's really weird fiction that captures that sense of uncertainty, that sense that I just don't know what's happening. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, what is this reference to this ancient god no one's ever heard of? Yeah. You know, why are we talking about this book that was translated three different ways a thousand years ago? Uh, That aspect, to me, is the more important part of the Gothic tradition than the castles. Like, the castles were something early Gothic writers used for a purpose. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to give our protagonist something confusing, something bewildering to wander around. Yeah. 
And then in the 21st century, the castles don't feel confusing. They don't feel bewildering. They feel familiar because it's what we expect from Gothic fiction. Mm -hmm. Um, So there you go. Genres and terms are malleable and change over time. You probably did not need a whole lot of education to know that. Oh, no. I I mean, it's it's always good to hear. (laughs) Uh, So, you know... You do you do get some good 20th century gothic fiction, but it tends to not have castles. Um, you get things like the Southern Gothic, where we really pick up on haunting and confusion, put in the context that people don't understand the social traditions to which they are beholden. Mm-hmm. Um, And I can circle that back to Carmilla by pointing out my very, very favorite aspect of Carmilla. Something that would never happen in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yeah. Though, much respect for Buffy the Vampire Slayer. They get a legal document signed and sealed so that they can dig up Carmilla's coffin. (laughs) So the important thing is they have identified, they've, they've gotten some evidence, they hear this story from a general at a ball, which in and of itself is a great example of how gothic fiction works. Mm-hmm. And now they realize they're dealing with some kind of supernatural creature who has played the same con on multiple young women. Mm-hmm. And so they need to destroy her. And in order to destroy her, they go to the governor and they get an official decree that they can dig up her grave and then they'll stake her and cut her head off. <laughs> and I feel like you don't you don't see that attention to legality in enough 21st century gothic stories. Yeah. The recognition that before we dig up a body, we need to get the proper government sanctioned first. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I mentioned there that Carmilla has pulled this prank con murder scheme on multiple young women and, and that's actually one way in which this story relates to older fiction about vampires. I mentioned that older fiction about vampires feature vampires as very habit-driven creatures. Mm-hmm. They are themselves superstitious creatures. They believe in the power of various signs. And so one way we see that in Carmilla is that she's not actually very creative. Yeah. You know, she's seductive and she's effective, but she does this same thing multiple times where she feigns some kind of accident, like a carriage crash. Mm -hmm. And she feigns like an illness or an injury. And she has a minion, she has a pawn who claims to be her mother. Mm -hmm. And her mother, her fake mother, says... I have to leave my injured and or sick daughter here with you while I run off to do some important business. Also, don't ask her any questions about her past. (laughs) 
Not suspicious at all. Not at all. And so one way that Laura's father uncovers what is happening to Laura is when he meets the general and the general talks about how this happened to his daughter. And it's the same story. Like, oh, there was a carriage accident. And then there was this beautiful girl and her mother. And her mother said, she has to stay here with you. Don't ask her any questions about her past. And then she disappeared. And then my daughter started getting sick. And then my daughter died. Uh, And even in that story, she, of course, used a different pseudonym. But it was a different pseudonym with the same letters. It was just (laughs) another anagram. Like, she couldn't think to create an alias like Julia. Yeah. Vampires are notoriously bad at that, coming up with names like Dr. Acula and Coach Ferratu. Right. <laughs> they, they just, they lack the creative spirit, perhaps because they don't have souls. Yeah, yeah. You know, I know, I will go as Nurse Ferratu. <laughs> yes. So, that, but that's consistent with the traditional folklore in which they lack the the necessary creative spirit to like not stop and count the matchsticks mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or to not believe the doorway prevents you from entering the house. So it's just always important to remember in talking about vampires that you're not you're not superstitious for believing in vampires. They're the superstitious ones. That vampires have this special kind of undead ADHD that makes them really distractible and not very creative. (laughs) Absolutely. It's, it's like you get, you get the vampirism, you know, like you're turned into a vampire. You have super strength. You live forever. You feed on blood, but you're really distracted by various things. Yeah. And I'm, I'm like curious now if like vampires are like, the type of people who are like start looking at a book and be like, I can't read this. This is garbage. And then be like, Hey, let's go do something else. <laughs> and I'm like, no, that's dyslexia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, they, they can be very attentive, right? It's, it's, it's not necessarily that they are super distracted. It's that they're always distracted by specific things. Yeah. You know, that that they always have to pay attention to specific things, and then they super pay attention to that. Yeah, yeah. You know, because going back to Dracula, it's really notable that he does successfully study British real estate law. Yeah. You know, that's not exactly a thrilling subject or something. But then... He also gets super focused on his soil. He can't, like... He he forgets to learn about steamboats and trains. Yeah. Uh, And I think you see a bit of that with Carmilla, where she doesn't, you know, think to mix up her story a little, so that maybe people won't connect the dots on the beautiful young woman who shows up in towns and then people start dying. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Probably, uh... See, it's a British story. You can only do it so long on one island to so many people. <laughs> well, it is a British story, but it is set in Styria. Styria. 
Styria. So it's a bit Eastern European, because in the classic tradition of Gothic fiction, all the bad things happen over there. You know, all of the original Gothic novels were set in France and Italy and Spain, where the Catholics lived. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the British Protestants felt comfortable portraying them as superstitious. Um, And by the 19th century, instead of treating Italy and France and Spain as superstitious and backward-minded, it was much easier to portray Eastern Europe as superstitious and backward-minded. Because if you are an imperialist nation, you are invested in pretending everyone is inferior to you. Yeah. Not the best plan. Not the best plan, especially, especially when your empire starts to move in with you and then you get stuff like H.P. Lovecraft, who's in New York City, and he's like, ah, there's, there's Catholics and there's Polish and there's Italians everywhere. Well, and to be fair, you know, we can see some of that anxiety about your empire moving in with you in a text like Dracula, Mm -hmm. where the Eastern European comes to London and now is a threat. Yep. And you can see it a little bit in something like Carmilla, where Laura and her father are British, they're living in Eastern Europe, and then this Eastern European, Carmilla, comes to live with them and starts to kill them. Uh Uh-oh. So it's also pretty racist. Yeah, yeah. But that tends to get overlooked in the emphasis on lesbian vampires. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and like most horror written before 19-whatever, it seems like Eastern European uh, racism, uh, looking down on people based off their religion and that kind of stuff, it's like... We're so far removed from that, we don't actually get those references anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's it's easy to miss um, that, you know, people people don't tend to think of Dracula as racialized, mm-hmm. uh, especially because he gets portrayed as very white in film adaptations. Yeah, yeah. Um, but definitely in the in the description of his face and his brow, you know, he is not Anglo-Saxon, mm-hmm. and neither is Carmilla. Yeah, yeah. You know, and part of this too is is the difference between how Americans view racism and how, say, the British view racism, and of course, both Stoker and Lefanu as Irishmen are acutely aware that the English do not view all white people as the same race. Well, even America, that was the way it was until, you know, a given period of time that certain people, like, I mean, it's not as bad as, like, you know, not accepting the Welsh as white people or Irish as white people or the Polish. You know, it's like in America, it's like, well... You know, it's like they're they're Polish, they're Irish, they're German. You know, they're they're not oh, yeah. good English. <laughs> Absolutely. 
Yeah, no, I mean, that, that Anglo-Saxon dimension yeah. or the... I mean, there's there's a good book um, that I, I think the title is something to the effect of, like, before the Irish were white. Yeah, yeah. And and that reminder that even even in the U.S., and I shouldn't say even in the U.S., especially in the U.S. Especially in the U.S. <laughs> you know, it, it was quite a while before... Irish were considered white, mm-hmm. um, you know, and and so we we tend to oversimplify our understanding of racism. Oh yeah, uh, which is not to undersell uh, how bad racism is. With re- okay, yeah, no, that that threat got lost. Yeah, no, no, don't worry <laughs> about it. Racism bad. Racism's bad. We know this. Uh, yeah. Uh, but, I mean, there there is a racial dimension to vampire stories that mm-hmm. is hard to pick up on when all of the actors are British. Yeah, yeah. And it's hard to pick up on now when we don't have, like, we don't see... Uh, we, we don't see the racial lines that we used to see with nationalities that we once saw, yeah. I guess, is what we were going before we lost that thread. Yeah, yeah. It's. I mean, it's always difficult to try and get at the nuances of something as sort of bizarre and dumbfounding as racism. Yeah, yeah. I'm. I'm kind of happy that we sometimes don't get what they're talking about, and then you have to look it up and be like, "Oh, okay, that character I didn't like was a racist dick." Okay, all right, I get it. <laughs> Where's where it's so easy to tell that Tom Buchanan's a racist. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. He puts it out there in terms we can still understand in the 21st century. Yeah, yeah, no, you have to get out uh, some uh, historical text to understand why a character in uh, gothic literature is a total douche canoe. That's right, <laughs> that's right. And those references are brought to you by context. Yep. <laughs> Context, making you regret understanding things since before time. Oh yeah, yeah. And I, I just like it's like everyone's worried about like Twitter and uh, Facebook and social media and like stuff that they did in like twenty years. And it's like we use the the, the language we use now. I feel like is so niche and so kind of like in jokey and stuff like that. Unless you say something really terrible. It's not going to be a big deal. <laughs> no, no one's going to understand it unless they do the research. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, what I worry about with Twitter is the way that it's so sans context yeah. that, like, you know, it it produces headlines in a way that they don't even make sense unless you actually do some historical research. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm also becoming less and less concerned with social media the more and more I see how, like, new generations use social media. And it's like, oh, you and all of your friends use a very specific app that all of you use, and you don't invite adult, adults to it, and you don't teach <laughs> adults how to use it. You don't make the mistake that Gen X made with Facebook. You keep Snapchat to yourself. <laughs> That's true, yeah. <laughs> you don't tell people about the apps that you're using. Only your friends know. 
Well, do you have other questions about Carmilla? Oh, man. You know, um, I'm, I was curious where Carmilla hung in the gallery of gothic tradition. I was curious how Carmilla paired up to other vampire stories. And I guess, you know, my classic Andrew Grace question, how would have Carmilla done in The Great Gatsby? My personal guess is uh, there, there, there'd be a professional athlete missing. <laughs> you know that's that's a good question i think that we've we've discussed you know how would dracula do and how would dr frankenstein do and they would they would do relatively well but i actually think carmilla would struggle and i think that Carmilla would struggle because she relies on a specific disposition of her young female victims. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and neither Jordan or Daisy nor Myrtle really fit that disposition. No, I feel like um, if... No, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, no, I was just going to say this This strangely makes me feel almost a little bit better about 20th century America. Uh -huh. That the women of 20th century America were given a little more freedom, a little more room to be active in their own lives. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I mean, I'm saying a little, but more than Laura had. Yeah. I think, like... The, the other characters would have been a little quicker to notice what was happening with Jordan or Daisy or Myrtle if they just started hanging out with this other woman who nuzzles them a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I have a feeling if uh, Carmilla was to appear in The Great Gatsby, it would be like some like throwaway line, like Clip Springer being like, yeah, no, I just haven't seen my sister in like, two weeks we're here uh but yeah no um hey drew thank you again so much for coming on the show and talking gothic tradition with us and a little bit of gatsby before my computer crapped out on us <laughs> well you're very welcome i'm always happy to talk about vampires and the gothic tradition whether or not those vampires are sexy lesbian vampires asterisk i say in jest <laughs> yeah. and if anyone out there is looking for a young adult science fiction novel about a school for time travelers hit me up all right sounds cool sounds cool thanks again drew and we'll talk at you next time excellent all right thanks everyone for listening to the show, uh, paying attention, listening to Brian and Drew talk about Carmilla, and yeah, yeah, thank you so much, and remember that we've got a monthly Call of Cthulhu audio show that we do for Blacklock Audio Tales called People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, gonna have Ken Height on talking about Rand to Goth, and yeah, no, it's, uh, pretty cool. And also, end of the month, we're going to have David Heath talking about Ambrose Bierce. We're going to have Ken Hyde talking about Ambrose Bierce, penultimate. So, yeah. Get ready for that. And 
All right. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll we'll get you next. We'll we'll talk to you next time. Um, um, keep it squiggly and stay weird. All right. Bye.